Hey everybody, this is the final podcast in our best of series. Uh, I'm planning on being back live next week and uh, I'm real excited about that. Uh, this podcast is with a guy named Chris Gibbons. I first met Chris out in Denver, Colorado at a, uh, at a conference. I was asked to, uh, to moderate a discussion with him and, uh, and a couple other people. Chris is fascinating. His story is, uh, is one that I have paraphrased and told to people many, many, many times. Um, because in the realm of economic development, to me, it is like the closest thing to a silver bullet answer as we're ever going to get. He has taken the essence of what the strong towns mentality is. And way before I ever thought of any of this, uh, had begun applying it in his life, in the places he worked, uh, and the cities that he was trying to lead. I'm incredibly inspired by Chris. I think he's done amazing work. I think he's a, a, just a genuinely nice, generous person who has devoted not only his working career to doing things that were, um, let me say, unnecessarily difficult. And I don't mean unnecessarily as in uh, the difficulty wasn't necessary to do what he wanted to do, but my gosh, there was way easier paths for him to take. Um, but he chose this one and we're all better off for it. And, and now as he um, you know, retires from being part of a city and uh, has gone to work now with the Lowe Foundation, just the work he has done to continue to advance this body of, of thought uh, is incredibly impressive to me. So I want to end with this one because it's one of my favorite podcasts with one of my favorite people a guy that has really inspired me, and I think you'll find a lot to benefit from here too. Here's an episode about economic gardening uh, with the founder of the concept, Chris Gibbons. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Inch by inch, Row by row, someone bless these seeds I sow. Someone warm them from below till the rain comes tumbling down. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I am happy to have Chris Gibbons, who is with the National Center for Economic Gardening. He is formerly head of economic development in Littleton, Colorado, and has pioneered some work in the field of economic gardening. Chris, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. The most interesting thing to me, when I, when I first met you, you described what you went through in Littleton. I don't want to call it terror, but the kind of big turmoil that you had with the large turnover of that one business and, and how you had to get real innovative. Could you just tell that story for people? Because I think it really sets up kind of the path you've been on for the last three decades. This all goes back to 1987 when I started to work at Littleton. And if you remember that time period, this is uh, Russia or the Soviet Union collapsing and uh, the Berlin Wall coming down over probably a two-year period there. A lot of changes. 
at that time, a major employer in Littleton was Martin Marietta. That's Lockheed Martin today. But they had employed about 15,000 people, and they made missiles. It was actually just outside of town, but a lot of their people lived in town. They had offices in town. So there was all this talk about you know, the end of the Cold War, and there's going to be this peace dividend. Well, the peace dividend in Littleton meant that about 7,000 people got laid <laughs> off because we were no longer in the war business, if you will. And our council at that time gave a charge to the staff is that I want you to work with existing businesses in Littleton and create good paying jobs. They didn't want burger flipping kinds of jobs. And that was about all of the direction we ever really got. But their concern at that time was Martin is a great corporation. They're very community minded. Their employees participated in the community. They ran for council. They did all sorts of great things. But they were based in Bethesda, Maryland, and when when you had to lay people off, you know we were fifteen hundred miles away sure, in Colorado, sure. right? And they didn't see those people at Saturday at the grocery store, and so council just felt like we needed to get more control over our local situation. So that was the really the impetus for trying to do something else. Talk about what you guys did in the early days. I want to get in a little bit the economic gardening as it exists today. I think people would benefit from knowing that you guys stumbled around a little bit. I mean, you, you didn't have the answer right out of the chute. This took a while to put together and develop and figure out what worked and what didn't. Stumbling around a little bit is a huge understatement. <laughs> we always kind of laughed that the book of mistakes we made was a two-volume set. So <laughs> Here's where we started out. At about that same time, we had come on the work of David Birch at MIT, and he had done all that original looking at the actual data of where jobs were created. He'd published his book about you know small businesses. But as he got deeper into the data, what they realized, it was this small band on a continuum of small businesses. You know, he came up with the word gazelles. Actually, Phil Burgess, who was at the Center for the New West, actually coined that word. But Phil and David knew each other, and we had met David through that because we knew Phil. So we got focused really quickly on this. Today, we call them stage two. We called them gazelles back then. Yeah. But the idea that there's two kinds of small businesses. There's the mom and pop, what you'd see on Main Street, the local markets, the local service folks. Most of those people never grow beyond 10 employees. There's another group of people that are start out small like that, but they grow. They have a history of growth during that time period. And so one of the things that we got sensitized to, and this has been 25 years ago, is if you really want to make a big impact, it's that second group of people. But in those early days, we had no model, no anything. We had nobody even to talk to because everybody else was doing something different. So right. we just was trying all different kinds of things. And we were, first of all, working with all different kinds of businesses. And we would run these seminars and, you know, here's how you do things better. And But we weren't getting a lot of results out of it until we got focused in on that smaller group of growth companies that are out there. So let's take the group that doesn't have high growth. Right. Their issues usually are around sales. They just don't have enough sales. So the question always tends to be marketing. You know, how do I get more sales? But the second group of people, they've solved that sales problem. And stage two, by definition, is 10 employees up to 100 employees and sales between one and 50 million. 
So their issues were more about how do I handle growth? How do I get systems in place? How do I get people in place? You know, monitoring my competitors and all the stuff that we do today. But we didn't know it back then. But as they started giving us feedback, we started getting refocused about what was going to be important and then went looking for new tools, new concepts to try to improve that process. I want to focus in on the first ones, the mon pa. That's an interesting insight, the idea that essentially it's just about sales. You know, how do we essentially increase your market or get more people here, get more people? It seems like most cities are focused on that end of the equation. Is that kind of a fair statement or not? Yeah, it is. And you know, it's not that it's not important. You know, a lot of the SBDCs work in that area and Chambers of Commerce and a lot of other folks do that business assistance. That's a huge group of people. They're important in any community. You still need coffee shops. You still need barber shops. Right. You know, all those things that you would find locally, but they're not driving the economy. That's the key insight that we figured out is that the people bringing money into the community were a different group of people than the people who were circulating it around inside the community. Both of them are needed, but the driver is the people who are selling outside the community and bringing money in. That was a huge insight to it. I worked a lot with Main Street Projects and the National Trust for Historic Preservation in my early years. And you know, we were always kind of micro-oriented right down there on Main Street and trying to figure out how to help people. But it occurred to me is the pipeline is coming from somewhere else. Right. And until you get a bigger pipeline, you can't solve the Main Street problem. And reading the stuff that you've written and listening to some of your talks, it does seem like the idea here is that those ma and pa shops are really a result of essentially the productivity from the stage two companies. They are. They're the recipient. If you just think of money being sort of water coming in a pipeline into town, if you got a little small pipeline, you don't have much water flowing around the town. And so you might have one restaurant because the money flow is so small. If you make a huge pipe and, you know, it's six times as large, you might have six restaurants down there because you've got enough money to support six restaurants. So the key to it is to go look at the other end of the pipe and see where that money's coming from. Right. I want to ask one more question about the early days in Littleton before we get deep into what the stage two companies are. In the early days of Littleton, I can picture you and your colleagues there trying to figure this stuff out and having the seminars and meeting with the small businesses. I just vision in my mind people pushing you saying, why aren't you out subsidizing businesses? Why aren't you out giving out tax subsidies and paying people to move here? Was that going on? And how tough was that? To some degree, you got to remember that, first of all, we had done that, and that's how we got into trouble. We, when Martin collapsed or, or went from 15,000 to 7,500 people, there was about a million square feet of vacant space in town. That's what everybody saw. Everybody saw the empty shopping centers, the empty offices, the empty industrial buildings. There wasn't a lot of enthusiasm about doing that again right. because there was sort of this feel of, you know, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away kind of thing. <laughs> is you didn't have control over it. You, you didn't have any say-so over, you know, when they pulled the plug on things. And so we had a little bit of breathing room there in those first few years. But here's kind of the order of which things started to happen. The first thing that happened, oh, about maybe 18 months or two years in, was the council was getting good feedback from the businesses we were working on is, 
wow, this is this is really cool. I can't believe you guys are doing this. Why hadn't we done this sooner? There wasn't any economic data. We couldn't show jobs yet. And we couldn't show increases in sales tax or those kind of things. But we could show politically that they like that. And so, you know, councils are pretty happy when business people say, yeah, right. you're doing the right thing. The economic numbers started to kick in a little later. I would maybe three years or something like that. We started to see upticks in there. You know, the job growth started and the businesses would testify it was in direct response to the work we did. We have went through, I think, three downturns during that 25-year period. And that very first one came fairly quickly. It was in the uh, early 90s. And the city was getting ready to cut budget. And that room was just loaded with business people saying, don't cut this economic gardening program. Wow, wow. And so that carried us in those early days, even though we weren't real sophisticated and super targeted. Right. We were making a difference. And the sheer fact that we were trying to help businesses carried a lot of weight. And then at some point, the numbers started to kick in pretty solid. Our, our job growth rate during that time period went from 15,000 to 30,000, and we didn't recruit one company during that 25-year run that I was there. We didn't spend one penny. We didn't subsidize anybody. You know, it was all working with local businesses to get that local growth. Our sales tax revenues to the city, which is, you know, their major revenue source, went from about six to 20 million. So that was like it tripled during that time period. If you got jobs and you got money, City councils don't actually ask much. <laughs> right. They're, they're not they're digging around happy. their program. Well, you, you know, and it seemed to me like when we hit the 2008 cycle, when a lot of cities in Colorado particularly really cratered and had some difficult times because they were largely wedded to the construction industry and that type of thing. I'm not saying, you know, there was no hardship at all, but it seemed like Littleton had maybe an easier time of it because of the diversity of that economic base. You think that's fair? We actually did. We put together a chart of all of the major suburbs in the Denver metro area starting in 2008 through 2012, I think is the last data we had. So here's all the, running down the left-hand side, all the cities and across the tops of years. So each year we monitored the jobs, the absolute number of jobs for each community. And if it went down over the previous year, you know, they got a red. And if it went up over the previous year, they got a green in the box. Sure. And so you look at all this chart and it's kind of spotty and some of them you just red, 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 you know, four or five years of just really getting hit. Some of them are red, green, kind of spotty through there. There's one community out of the entire metro area that's got a green bar all the way across, and it was Littleton. Wow. Now, they weren't big numbers. You know, I, I can remember a couple of years, it was like we had plus 15 jobs over the prior year. But the point is, we didn't lose like all of those other communities did when things got really tough. To me, that is the largest selling point is that what you've done in Littleton is real. It's not the byproduct of some false transformation, some inducement that is not market-based. Uh, these are all solid jobs that are going to stick around for a while. And that's a really good point because if you give money to people to come in town, there's one of two things going on. Either they don't have enough money to make it in the market, which means you're subsidizing them, which tells you it's a weak company. And you know, anytime you run into a recession, the weak companies are the ones who are going to die. Or they're a good, strong company, and they're just pocketing that money. Right. And right. in either way, it didn't make any sense to us. Right. We always said, we will take the 
money that you would normally give to a company to come to town, and we'll put it into infrastructure in our own community. We'll build things and services and all these databases that we bought. If the company happens to move out of town, and that happens, there were companies that moved out of Littleton, but they didn't take our money with them. (laughs) Our stuff was still in Littleton. So our investments were always in the community, not in the company per se. Let's talk about stage two companies. I heard you describe it once as the entrepreneurs that live on the, I can't remember how you said it, the edge of chaos or the border of chaos. (laughs) What is special about these stage two companies and what is that edge of chaos? One of the things that makes a program really strong is the underlying principles. And they came out of the new sciences. And most people are not familiar with that. But it was developed down at the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Here's what they discovered is there are two kinds of systems. There's a mechanical system where the same input through the same process gets you the same output. Sure. And there's a lot of stuff around, you know, math is like that. Two plus two gets you the four. It gets you to an answer, a known place. You're always going to end up there. If you put aluminum in the in the machine, you know, you always get a can. You don't get a car door every once in a while, or you don't right. get a squirrel or, you know, something unexpected. Right. So mechanical systems are one kind of system, but there's a second system that are biological systems that none of those things I just said are true. Now, businesses, as it turns out, are a combination of both mechanical and biological. So, you know, the accounting and the engineering and the machines on the shop floor, those are all mechanical systems. But you get two big chunks in there, which are your employees and your customers with yeah. your biological systems. And that's where, you know, you spend most of your time, most of your headache trying to get a handle on what's going on out there. So we came back and incorporated all that stuff into it. And that term, edge of chaos, came out of the Santa Fe Institute. What they said is that in biological systems, you'll see three regimes. So just draw a rectangle with three boxes across here. On the left-hand side is a frozen regime. On In the middle is stable. On the right-hand side is chaotic. Well, as it turns out, biological systems set between the stable and the chaotic or the high change. You know, if you'd ask most people, what is the perfect situation? They would say it would be stable. stable but biology right. doesn't work that way. you got to be changing enough to keep up with the changes going on in the environment but not change so much that you just flip over into total chaos. So that term, edge of chaos, is that line between stability and chaos. And it's kind of a sexy term. They could have called it edge of stability, but that right, <laughs> right, catch anybody's <laughs> yeah. attention. So I was going to these seminars and conferences down at Santa Fe, and I came back and I looked at our growth companies, and I was talking with our staff, and we're going, that's just exactly what we're looking at. These people... You know, you, you go inside their offices, they don't hold meetings and committees and that sort of stuff. Things are just done in the hallways while they're walking. Right. You know, it's like, walk with me, and, and you know, it's a four-minute conversation while they work through stuff. And it just felt like they were just right on the edge of spinning out of control. But at the same time, they were creating new products and, and new changes just exactly like nature did. And once we started to see the correlation between what these really smart guys, I mean, they were Nobel laureate of sciences, yeah, yeah. scientists down yeah. there. And then what we saw in the field is like, we're looking at the exact same thing. This is running at the edge of chaos. It's an incredible insight because often we do think it's simply, you know, dollars in, dollars out. And I credit you because I don't know your background before Littleton, but a lot of people who have government backgrounds sometimes struggle to appreciate that chaotic environment that is the private sector, you know, the stage two company, the ones that are dealing with, you know, a broader national regional market, the high growth. 
I mean, was that a difficult thing for your staff to grasp and to kind of see well, the implications? Well, we, we all came out of the private sector. It was one of the things that helped. I, I had a consulting firm prior. The only reason I ended up in Littleton is yeah. for that same 87 recession is that all of the cities cut their consulting contracts. And mm. so I was just ducked in there and I thought, I'll be here a year, wait till this blows over, right, right. you know, kind of a safe harbor in a storm thing, and then go set my company back up. Yeah. And 25 years later, I've retired. <laughs> but the reason is that my my boss flew cover for me, encouraged me, got me budgets, helped me think through stuff, and it was really a, a stimulating environment. And all the people I hired, they all came out of the private sector, so they were all used to that. That wasn't something new, and we never really felt like government inside our department because we just operated so differently. Sure. And we all just had this passion for entrepreneurs. We just thought that was the coolest world that was out there, and to be able to dabble around in it was just like... Oh, this is a kid in the candy shop kind of thing. Well, let's talk about the mind of an entrepreneur. What kind of person is this? Because, you know, we, we run into people all the time who are labeled as entrepreneurs. And I admire the Ma and Pa who start the pizza joint and make a go of it. I mean, they're, you know, hardworking people who contribute to the community. But that's not exactly the entrepreneur as you're describing it, is it? No, I, you know, that word covers a lot of situations out there, but really ours has got a slash innovation in it. The people that we deal with are setting out to change the world. They're the people that are going to create new things. You know, pizza's been invented and yeah, you, know, you put another pizza place in, but that's not the kind of folks that work that, you know, they're always trying to think of better ways to doing things or completely disruptive technologies that completely change how you think and do different kinds of things. One of our basic frameworks is temperament, and we use Myers-Briggs, yeah. and it's really fundamental. And what we know is the intuitive preference, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, is very common in these growth companies. I'm an INTJ. I'm INTP. Okay. The INT is the intuitive part, right? The N is the, the key N. one in there, the N. Okay. Yeah, which is the intuitive preference. But intuitive people – so if you go back to this basic idea of stability and change – well, there are stable temperaments and change temperaments. Yeah. And the intuitives tend to be the change temperaments. The guardians, if you know Myers-Briggs, anything I do, that has yeah. an S and a J in it, tend to be the stable. And so there's always this question as well, should you be intuitive or should you be stable? Nature never asked that question. It asks, what is the tension between those two? It's right. like, well, what combination of change and stable should you have? And the faster the environment changes, the more you need change temperaments in your organization. If you're in a very stable industry, and I always use Hershey chocolates, what does a manager do at Hershey? Yeah. You get up every morning and go... Make more chocolate. Sure, sure. <laughs> all the decisions were made a hundred years ago. You, you got all your sourcing out of South America. You know, you're selling it worldwide. You right. make it exactly the same. You've made it for a hundred years. You talk about a stable industry. They don't need a lot of change people in Hershey chocolate. Right, right. Um, you know, if you're Apple or somebody like that, where your environment is just you know complete turmoil, then you do need a lot of those intuities. That makes a lot of sense. Put a name or a, not necessarily a name as in a business, but a type of business so that people can, in their minds, think of what a stage two company would be. Wow. They are all over the place. One of the things that we know is they're not in any given industry. There's a tendency to think that they're always tech. A lot of them are tech, but there are all kinds of companies out there. Let me just give you the yeah, yeah. kind of three corners of things I could think of. In Florida, we worked with thin film sputtering companies. 
And so we're going into this all looking at each other like, do you know anything about pen film sputtering? Cause <laughs> I don't even know what it is they do. Yeah. You know, this is on one complete end, and, and there's other companies down there that work with the Department of Defense, and so they're very extreme high-tech. Going complete to the other end, I can think of a woman in Kansas we worked with that makes little porch banners, you know, the little flowers sure. and flags and things you hang on your porch. And that sounds like, boy, does it get any more generic than that? But actually, we went in and identified the lifestyle of the kind of person that was buying that because she had her customer base. And we plotted it on a map, and then we have the lifestyles of everybody in the United States. We know the neighborhoods. Yeah, we yeah. said, look, you're selling to these five different kind of lifestyles, whether you know it or not. Would you like to know where those lifestyles are in the rest of the country? So we plotted them out in all the cities, and we had the names and addresses of everybody in the country, and we gave them to her. Within a couple months, she'd hired seven more people. Wow. I mean, she's selling banners. So that's the other end. And then kind of the third end is, I think, the company out of Utah that sold salt. And it doesn't get any more commodities. Sure, sure. But as it turns out, this had like 71 minerals. It was a very special bed that had been laid down millions of years ago in Utah. It was a very nutritious salt, if you will. So it's all over the board is, is the point I'm trying to make here. There's another kind of company. There's a stage three company. I see cities a lot of times focusing on trying to get those people in. Who are those people? Can you describe them and kind of the difference between a two and a three? The definition difference is that they're over 100 employees and they're over 50 million in sales. So something else happens somewhere in that threshold in there, and that is you have started to put systems in place. You know, you moved out of that entrepreneurial orientation and more toward a management orientation. So you've got procedures and you've got, uh, you know, forms and all that stuff that it really takes. You've you got to bring some discipline to a company at some point. Just yeah. because, you you uh, slid down the chaos scale towards stability a little more. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That's a really good description. That's okay. exactly what you're doing. And because the market has settled down and stabilized and it's somewhat like looking for oil, it's like, okay, we have hit a big pool of oil here. We're pretty confident that the money's going to keep coming in for quite a while here. We just need to get this thing organized. And so those stage three companies are much more in those areas. They know what it is they need to do. They just now find the most efficient way to do it and, and get the clean procedures that work for them. Let's talk about what economic gardening as an approach does for stage two companies. To me, the idea of the entrepreneur running around uh, like a chicken with their head cut off, you know, trying to all of a sudden I've got this great idea, whether it's bird feeders or salt or high tech, and there's a demand for it. But now all of a sudden I have to deal with HR. I've got to deal with marketing. I've got staff I'm adding, you know, I got to recruit you guys step in here and kind of solve some of these problems. Is that right? We do, some of them, but they tend to be big front-end strategic issues. We okay. don't do operational stuff. Yeah, yeah. We've got what we call five frameworks or classes of business problems that if you don't get these down cold, you're probably going to go under. You know, there's maybe, what, 125 things on strung out down that little line that if you don't get your insurance right, it might dent up your company, but you're probably not going to go under. But sure. You've got to get markets. You've got to get core strategy. You've got to get qualified sales leads and innovation and how you put those management teams in place. And that's where we focus. That's where all of those new science principles come to bear. We do. If I could use two broad descriptions, one of them would be strategic information, and the other one would be these frameworks for how to think about what the problem that you're dealing with. 
because a lot of times it gets asked in a marketing, how do I do these kinds of things? But we always talk about, let's make sure your foundation's in place. We do a lot of research, uh, competitor intelligence and industry trend work and how does government regulations affect me and new product releases and supply chains and a bunch of things along that line because we have a lot of commercial databases that we subscribe to that are like the Internet but better, yeah. more expensive, and they're much more exactly what you're looking for instead of getting, you know, here's a million hits with the word in it. Right, <laughs> Because right. it has the word in it doesn't mean it's relevant. Right. We bring all those high-end corporate-level tools, search engine optimization. We, we have GIS, which is geographic information system, so that's computerized mapping of data. Uh, we have something called listening posts. Maltigo actually will map uh, network connections on the Internet and on Twitter and other any place there's a network. It will draw a map of how people are connected. Those are all high-end corporate-level tools that the big guys have. The guys that are starting to grow need them. They need that exact same information, but they usually can't afford it. And sure. they can't, you know, they don't use it enough to keep it up to speed. They can't bring in somebody to do that full time. So we bring all that to bear. Let me throw this out at you. And I want you to kind of react to this because this was where I first kind of bogged down in understanding what you were doing. Because I grew up in it, I get the subsidize the business and pay them to move here model. And right. somehow that didn't trigger any huge uh, private sector, public participation type of problem in my brain. When you started talking about, and I heard this years ago, when you start talking about, well, we go in and we do market research. There's a part of me that said, gosh, that seems a little too cozy between the public and the private sector. So you're talking about a political philosophy. I, uh, which Go ahead. I, I really want to hear your take on that because I've reconciled it myself <laughs> and I yeah. love it, but I think maybe it will help some people who are stuck at this point get past that. It's a good point. And, and I recognize there's a continuum of people who say, you know, government should do nothing beyond, you know, having the army. <laughs> protect right, the nation right. And, that's sure. and then there's people on the other end that said they should be doing lots of stuff. But here's where our council came to. First of all, if you are giving money to companies, that's a lot closer relationship than what we do. Amen. That's like, hey, what we always said is under that model, when you're recruiting, we go to all the businesses in town, we tax them, we take that pot of money, we then go look at somebody who doesn't live in town and may or may not need this money and give it to them, and they may or may not stay. If they leave, they just took your money. That's pretty darn personal. Right. <laughs> That's money out of my pocket yeah. into somebody else's pocket. And if, if they're doing well, they just put it to their bottom line. Sure. What we said is that information that the public does certain things and needs to do certain things and that the provision of information is not much different than the provision of libraries. Now, I realize there's a part of the political spectrum that probably argues that even libraries shouldn't exist. <laughs> right. But my politics tend to be pretty moderate and practical. And so we're providing information we provide connections, and we provide infrastructure. Those three things are pretty solid in the middle of well-accepted public needs to have roles in these kinds of places, and that's the kind of things we did. Here is the rule that we always did say is that if we're doing something that the private sector can do very well and uh, they come to us, we'll get out of it. We actually were doing video conferences at one point, and we had a company in town that came and said, what are you doing? I'm, in the, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to make a living like this, and you're taking people's taxes and competing with you. We were out of that business within the week because 
our orientation is we're not here to replace the private sector. We're here to make it work better. Right. So that's the kind of touchstone for us all the time is if the private sector can do it, you know, we're not going to. But the reality, or at least my reality over 25 years, is the private sector ignored those emerging growth companies. Let's talk about what it takes to set up an economic gardening program. Obviously, you've got to recruit a certain type of staff with certain background to be able to do this. Can you just walk us through some, maybe a success story or two about places that have done this? Yeah, and this is uh, one of those lot of mistake stories. <laughs> yeah, that, no, you know what? I don't think we appreciate enough the lot of mistake stories. I mean, that's where the knowledge comes from. It does. When I first was doing this, we had over 800 communities from around the nation either came to Littleton to see what we were doing or else I went there and explained it. You know, I was running the program, and I'm happy to talk to you. This is professional courtesy kind of thing. But sure. I didn't have time to go help people set up their programs. Well, as I got closer to retirement, I started to realize it was not that easy to duplicate what we did. First of all, we had a pretty large budget. I didn't realize that we had a relatively large budget until I got toward the end. So one of the things that I finally decided is this works better on a hub-and-spoke model. And, and Florida was our first example of doing this. Instead of each little community trying to duplicate what we did, buy all those databases, all those tools, get those really highly skilled people that you're going to pay through the nose for because they're bringing the high-end skills and uh, they have this orientation toward entrepreneurs, that it's better to centralize all of that and then serve the outlying spokes. So in Florida, the University of Central Florida put that team, put those resources, and then they've got, I think there's eight regions they serve around the state. So if you're out there on a spoke in your local community, you would have access to this. You can call up UCF and say, you know, we've got a company. We'd like for you to work for them. Maybe you just got one company a year. Maybe you've got 100 companies a year. You just plug them into the pipeline, and the work starts. And so you have no fixed costs. You had no risk. You had no, you know, gearing up all this stuff. You just tapped into that central resource. The National Center, we've got 20 – no, wait a minute. We're at 30 – Five, There's like new ones three. adding every day, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So Michigan works like that. Uh, Louisiana works like that. You know, New Mexico, Utah, uh, Missouri, Kansas, all these places that we're working. I think that model works best where you've got a hub and spoke. Now, the other thing that we put together is we now have a national team. If you don't even want to gear it up at the state level, and actually Michigan works like this, they said, you know what? We don't even want to put the team together. You guys do it really yeah, well. Yeah, you know what yeah, you're doing. Yeah. We'll just funnel them into you. So that's the best model in my mind because you can tailor it. You can turn it on and off. I need exactly this amount of resources for this amount of companies, no more, no less. So it's really targeted. When we start talking about databases, and I've seen some of the GIS mapping and some of the things that you guys have, it is really detailed. When I look at it, I'm thinking like the stuff that the presidential candidates are using to determine, yeah. you know, on a precinct by precinct basis, how things are going to go. Exact same technology. Yeah, yep. you guys have that kind of data. Yeah, yeah, we do. And it's just a matter of buying it. You know, we didn't generate. You can buy, the, what is there, 330 million people or something like that in the country. You can buy data for all 300. Right. We've got the addresses if you want to buy them, all yeah, yeah. 330 million people in the yeah. United States. Yeah. What's more important is getting targeted profiles and understanding, you know, motivations and, and lifestyles and how people work. And the same thing over on business side, extremely targeted you can use the old SIC code, Standard Industrial Classification. It's now called NAICS. Sure. But it's 
that only takes you down to a certain level. One of the things we specialize is finding those exotic databases that say, you know, we can find really extremely fine-grained uh, detail about these companies. And once you get your hands on that, the mapping is relatively easy. You know, you just plug it in and it does all the work. But finding the data is the hard part of what we do. I came down to, it was about three years ago, I think, maybe two. You guys had the conference in Florida. Uh-huh. You, have, you have an annual conference every year on economic gardening. One of the things that was fascinating were the results. And I've been following Florida you know, you have a, a listserv where you send out little tidbits now and then. And I kind of been keen to follow Florida because they were really the first statewide approach, were they not? They were. Mm-hmm. I don't expect you to have the numbers right off the top of your head, but can you talk in like general terms about the success that Florida has had, specifically yeah. the success in compared to the success of the traditional program, the traditional economic development approach? There's some I, interesting I don't comparisons. have the numbers for that second part of that question, but okay. I do have them for our side. The Florida program, which has been in a pilot stage, you know, and, and remember, we started this in 2009, I think it was. So we're like in the heart of the recession when we right. started down there. If you had two kinds of companies and they matched up exactly in terms of having, you know, the same size, same industry code, et cetera, et cetera, and they went through our program versus not program, the people who didn't go through our program would have a, about a minus 0.5 loss in employees and revenue, R- roughly. I'm going to throw some broad numbers. Sure, yeah. If you went through our program, they were plus 10. Right. So there was a huge spread in it, a 10% growth rate in the heart of the recession going through our program. In Kansas, so it started later, so it's toward the end of the recession, the average growth rate, both in employees and revenues, was 30% going through our program that nobody did less than 20% growth. We're getting more and more third-party numbers. The Florida numbers, are they've been audited by a uh, private sector company and by the state auditor. So we had no way to influence, you know, sure, fudging right. the numbers kind of stuff. These were the green eyeshade guys that went through this. The numbers are starting to come in and the other places, they're all running in those same general ranges out there. We know that if we can get the help to the growth-oriented companies that they really take off. We don't create jobs. Economic developers don't create jobs. It's private sector. Even if you're recruiting, there's always this tendency of economic developers, well, we created 4,000 jobs. Right. It's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. I'm CEO of a company that created those jobs. Yeah. Yeah. But we can accelerate the process. We absolutely know that. Just so people can get their minds around, do you know what Florida's budget is for economic gardening? It was one million when they put the first together, but it's probably the largest of the program, except for Michigan. I don't have these uh, numbers at my fingertips. I probably shouldn't even be. No, but in comparison, here in Minnesota, we're spending about half a billion dollars on a new public stadium. We're spending tens of millions of dollars subsidizing Shutterfly now to move to the state. And there's a bunch of those things going on. We're talking about tiny, tiny fractions of what states normally spend. Plus the job creation is around $1,200 per jobs created. Again, we didn't create the jobs, but the private sector did with some help. About $1,200 worth of help in there. If you're in the automobile plant, those jobs are running 250 to 350,000 per job. So for every million dollars, you get four jobs in an automobile plant. My gosh. We'll do better than that. Yeah. 
Here's the story I love. Is that Florida uh, recruited Scripps into there, and that deal ended up costing them, I think, about $1.2 million per job. And we were kind of joking, if you give us a million dollars, we'll guarantee you a job because that's what Scripps did. <laughs> <laughs> if wow. I got to go to work down there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. create a job. <laughs> uh, I think we could pull that one off, huh? Yeah. If people are listening to us today, maybe before I do that, we should talk about the Edward Lowe Foundation. How did you guys get involved with them and what's their role now? I, I know they're supporting this and, and on board and how are they helping you guys out? They are. Um, this is back in 2004. I got an email out of the blue from Mark Lang, who was the CEO up there, and he somehow knew that our program was around. The Edward Lowe found Ed Lowe created kitty litter and made a hundred million dollars <laughs> selling sure. sand in a bag. He'd been dead for quite a while, but they set up a foundation to, uh, you know, support entrepreneurs. He was a big supporter, a big believer way back when it wasn't a hot topic. And so with their charge and our on the ground, you know, we had a program that was real, that was working, that had results. We started working together. I've always said that, you know, I had an idea, I had a brand, I had a following and I had the track record, but I didn't have the capital to expand this. They've got, I don't know, maybe 35, 40 employees. They've yeah. got a webmaster and they've got a 2,600 acre retreat and, uh, you know, a PR person, yeah, yeah. A, a video person. So they had all the infrastructure. That's the role that they play today is they provide all of that uh, behind the scenes infrastructure. You know, I handle the sort of front, the marketing side of what it is we're doing. It's turned out to be a beautiful partnership. Uh, Mark and I always used to joke that, you know, not only did we not sign contracts when we started working together, we didn't even shake hands. We just started. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind of relationship. If people are listening to this today and they're saying, wow, I'm really enthused about economic gardening, where should they be going to learn more, to get connected to all this, to start looking at ways to put this to work in their community? Sure. A couple places. Penny Lewandowski has taken Mark's position at the foundation. She's now the head of all the programs. Okay. And Jessica Nelson works for her. So Jessica at low, L-O-W-E dot org is a good email address. Uh, mine is Chris Gibbons, all one word, C-H-R-I-S-G-I-B-B-O-N-S at Q, like queen, dot com, Chris Gibbons at Q dot com. You can email either one of us. Uh, there is a website. Just put Edward Lowe Foundation and Google. And I'll tell you what, I'll that. connect to it on the podcast so people can okay. get that. Any of those connections, me, Penny, uh, Jessica, Nelson, would be happy to talk with you. You can read what's on the website, and they put out a lot of publications now because that's one of the things they do very well. Now, you guys do an annual conference, and you've got training going on routinely. Is that correct? Both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we just did our 10th annual in uh, Kansas City. We are uh, talking with folks about where it goes next year, have not decided, but we usually do it in early June. We move it around the nation. We've had, oh, probably between 150 and 200 people. It's not a huge conference. You know, we're not that big of a deal, but that's a lot of communities if you stop and think about it. We uh, do training, uh, certification, and training uh, each spring and each fall. Those classes run about 20 to 25, and I think we've put 125 people through those. One of our issues is just to make sure people do high fidelity projects. I got a little worried about people were calling a lot of stuff economic gardening and I, right. I didn't recognize it. Right. We train them as to all oh. the, the principles. The, I'm uh, telling you, I, I go talk to, you know, the people in my hometown, I've sent them your stuff and they're like, Oh yeah, we do all this. I'm like, no, yeah. you don't. <laughs> <laughs> when 
and I hear that, and then I go, oh, well, good, let's talk about edge of chaos. Right, Let's exactly. talk about fitness landscapes. Yeah, or, yeah. You know. <laughs> we actually have projects in Minneapolis and five of the counties in the metro area there. Probably we'll do projects both north and south of the metro area. Yeah, I'm real excited uh, about that. You guys started in Anoka County down there, and I, I know it's did. expanded yeah. a little bit, and there's been some buzz. But you know, our governor right now is the former head of the Department of Employment and Economic Development. It was called something different back when he did it. Yeah, he's an economic development guy, and I've been interested to see if this would penetrate his inner circle at all. Any word on on that? You know, I'm not on that end, uh, so I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I do know that they talk with folks in the state. We primarily have been working with county folks. Uh, we actually started Hennepin County with the very first one, then we moved up to Anoka. Sure. But we've got five of those counties, and we've got a uh, foundation that's in those counties north of the metro area, and then another group that's in counties south of the metro area. So it's more grassroots, I think. You still live in Colorado? I do. live Excellent. in uh, Evergreen. I saw on your Twitter feed that you're a grandpa, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my major titles. That's an important job. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris Gibbons, thank you for taking the time. I've been inspired by your work for a long time, and it's fantastic to get a chance to chat with you again. Thanks for being on the podcast. You bet, and thank you. Thank you, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. One last thing, Juliana Dowds, get up and dance, because this one's for you. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. County claims this road project will make commuting easier between the south and central parts of the county, but it comes at a high price for taxpayers, more than $100 million of your money. I went to see St. Louis County Chief Operating Officer Gary Earls, who's in charge of this costly deal. For the average commuter, though, how much time is this going to save? Do you know? No. You guys don't know how much time this no. $100 million road is going to save, but you want to build it anyway? Yes, we want to build it anyway. So you don't know what the benefit is yet, though? Well, correct. I don't know the benefit. I don't know it. I can tell you that it's... You're in charge. Why wouldn't you... Shouldn't you know I'm in charge of a lot of things. The county says communities shouldn't fear the South County Connector. The biggest benefit is to make a direct connection from South County to, to the central part of the county to connect the commerce 
of Central County to the people that live in South County. You're going to be slicing through some business areas, though, with this connector. Some. So you're going to be destroying some business. Uh, as little business as possible, we'll try to destroy. Is this like if you build it, they will come? It is building it, and they come. Suppose they don't come, they and you will. spend $100 million. They will. How do you know? Trust me.